was on, put on the board about 2010, so a little over wow. 12 okay. years. Great. Great. Well, welcome everyone to the Revolution 250 podcast. I am Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Committee. And we are joined today by Brian Mack from the Fort Plain Museum in the Mohawk River Valley. Brian, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And the Fort Plain Museum, it's relatively new, and it tells a very important story about the war in the Mohawk River Valley. Yes. Um, uh, basically, it started as like a refugee uh, stockaded area for the uh, what used to be it was called the Canajahari district, not the Canajahari mm -hmm. we think of today with the modern village. But basically it was a stockaded fort probably right around the time after the Cherry Valley Massacre in November of 1778. Um, it was a stockaded fort right on through 1780 when there were mm. some raids and stuff happening. And then we have the Albany County Militia coming down and General Robert Van Rensselaer names it his headquarters. And then it becomes more of a significant larger outpost. Oh, so um, there are folks living in the Mohawk. There, there are both Indians and European or Americans living in this valley, Germans and Scots-Irish and other folks. Can you tell us a bit more about what's going on in the revolutionary period in the Mohawk River Valley? Yeah, definitely. Uh, within the early parts, well, Sir William Johnson is the key figure. He's an yeah. Irish immigrant, comes over in about 1732, uh, settles his uncle's land. He's kind of like a superintendent of his uncle's land, makes relationships with the Mohawks, um, really interjects with their tribe and uh, really... So he's adopted into the Mohawk, right? Uh, uh, yeah, because he, he did have an adopted name. He was, um, yeah. you know, eventually becomes uh, the superintendent of Indian affairs, uh, yeah. appointed by the uh, king and royal governor. And basically his um, thing is keeping peace with the uh, Indians, mm -hmm. the Mohawks and the Oneidas mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, the uh, Haudenosaunee, the six uh, nations. Right. And so he's really the key figure. He dies in July of 1774, so just prior to the mm. revolution starting. So we always like to have the debate, which side would he go on? Right. Um, what do you but, think? Um, what do I think? I think he probably would have been loyalist and or mm. royalist yeah. and inside yeah. with, with the British um, and his family did the same. Right. So you're looking at in 1775 when hostilities break out, we have a lot of the uh, loyalists here in the valley and even the Mohawks, they, you know, they start fleeing towards Canada to take refuge mm -hmm. and, and then they plan their war from up in that. So basically, you know, the, the valley, the, you know, some stay like uh, John Johnson, his uh, son who actually inherited mm -hmm. the baronet and all that from Sir William. He actually doesn't leave until 1776, pretty much when mm -hmm. Philip Schuyler and I believe mm -hmm. the 3rd New Jersey Regiment come down to arrest him. Then he finally flees in 1776 wow. Wow. and heads north. And what about Molly Brandt? How does she fit into this story? And yeah, Molly Brandt was, I guess, the common law or however you want to name it, wife mm -hmm. of Sir William. I believe they had nine kids together. Wow. Yeah. And so after uh, after Sir William dies in 74, she moves back into her home in Canajahari, which is mm -hmm. uh, where the Indian Castle Church is now, which is actually west of Fort Plain. She moves out. She moves back out there and is basically in the valley. She played a key role in alerting the British uh, Saint Leger and mm -hmm. when they were sieging Fort Schuyler, now Fort Stanwix. Mm -hmm. uh, when they were sieging that, she let you know she uh, tipped them off that General Nicholas Herkimer and the Tryon County Militia were coming through, and that's how they were able to ambush them at a risk. And he, she alerted. Wow. So she she definitely played a key role, and then I believe at some point she eventually goes up to Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Joseph Brandt is her brother? Brother. Yes. Yeah, Joseph okay. Brandt is her brother. He's key throughout the war. Yeah, yeah. Um, gets a kind of a bad rap as like the bad guy, you know, 
raiding and doing mm -hmm. all this, but really he had still had a lot of people he knew in the valley and didn't want mm -hmm. to just you know, kill, you know, he wanted to maintain yeah. those relationships. I think he kind of gets blamed for some things that maybe like yeah. the Cherry Valley Massacre is one. What and is the Cherry Valley Massacre? Uh, yeah, the Cherry Valley Massacre happened, I believe, in November 11th or 13th of 1778. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, uh, Cherry Valley is was like a little hamlet um, south of Fort Plain, probably about, you know, half hour south. And, mm -hmm. and basically, um, it was probably right on the edge of Maw country out down there. And so, you know, it was a settlement in the wide open. There was a, uh, it was a Massachusetts uh, regiment that was stationed there, Colonel Alden, uh, where in the, there was a somewhat of a fort, uh, and basically, uh, Brant, well, they like to blame Brant, but it was Walter mm -hmm. Butler, actually Seneca's, uh, mm -hmm. Mohawks too. They just come in and they just ravage the town, mm -hmm. um, pretty much burn, well. you know, kill off everything in sight. And, you know, they just kind of hit it quick. And it's, it's one of many things that actually kind of led to the Sullivan Clinton expedition of 1779 right. as kind of retribution. Right. Because you have all these, uh, there's other things that were happening throughout 78. Mm -hmm. and So it's mm -hmm. kind of like a back and forth. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't like to use the word revenge, but, you know, it's just a back and forth war throughout. Yeah. Even, even after mm -hmm. Yorktown, there was stuff going on in 1782. Yeah. So do you think there had been like bad blood between people in this area? I know I, uh, I should tell our, tell our listeners you are really not an historian. You're doing a great job as one. And yeah. I know you as an historian, as the driving force behind yeah. Fort Plain, but you're really an auditor accountant. And yeah. so this is like your passion, which is it's great. Great to have you telling the story so well. So had there been like uh, simmering discontent among different folks who had arrived or uh, that leads to the bloodshed in the Mohawk River Valley, do you think? Yeah, there's definitely some uh, rivalries. Uh, you got the Clock family. George Clock is a prominent family that actually stay, uh, you know, they side with the Americans and they kind of rivaled the Johnson family who mm -hmm. sided with the British and actually probably even goes back into the fur trade because they were both fur traders and mm -hmm. you know, they traded with, with the Mohawks. So it was right. like, well, I don't like what you're doing there and I don't like what you're doing. So on back and forth. And you do get these rivalries, uh, Fonda, another kind of prominent name in the area. Hmm. Um, some of the actors, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, they're descendants of. Really? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And there was uh, Adam Fonda was arrested and put in the hmm. jail by the by the royalist uh, sheriff hmm. White and held there. Then, then the angry rebel mob goes and they free him out. This happened in 1775. So you do have wow. that kind of back and forth with folks, even wow. even with it amongst families like the Clock family. They even had mm. you know brothers, sons against you know brothers and fathers and so on wow. and so forth. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. So now, what can you tell us about the Fort Plain Museum? I mean, what would I see? What would we see if we go and yeah, visit you, you? Yeah, if you came there today, basically the Fort Plain Museum is a uh, 1847. Stone House. It's an Erie Canal era house. Um, it is the site of the Revolutionary War Fort, kind of established in mm -hmm. 1779. But if you go there today, the the stone building in there is there. There's a rebuild of the colonial building that mm -hmm. the stone building replaced in, in 1847. There's kind of a replica. And that's where we house our exhibit on the uh, Mohawk Valley and the American Revolution. So if you come mm -hmm. to our museum, uh, you're going to see like kind of a timeline exhibit where you're going to see nice graphics, some readings, mm -hmm, some, mm -hmm. a lot of artifacts, all kind of tying in that entire story from the beginning of the uh, uh, creation of the Tryon Committee wow. uh, safety to George Washington's visit in 1783. Mm -hmm. So we mm -hmm. kind of cover wow. it all. 
And you have it's uh, you have seventy five acres, I think. Uh, yeah, we have a pretty 19... good site. Yeah, that would be mostly yeah. the Fort Hilltop. So right. you're going to have the museum kind of on one level. Okay. And you have a, a roadway going up to the Fort Hill. Mm -hmm. um, up there, you can still see some remnants of earthworks. There's mm. been a lot of archaeology done in the seventies, eighties, even really? right through uh, within the last ten years. Mm -hmm. um, so, what yeah. kinds of things have they found with the archaeology? Uh, they found, well, the first, when they did the first archaeology, they found the site. There was a huge three-story black house built by the French mm -hmm. engineer Villa France, uh, commissioned by uh, General von Stoven. And um, it was a nice, big, huge three-story black house. They found exactly where it was located. We actually found the plans out in the American wow. uh, in Aquarian Society. That's who actually in Worcester, holds, yeah. Yeah, holds the original plans. Uh, wow. Where, Board members, researchers found that, and they were actually able to line it right up. And then there they found cannonball. They found pieces that go to, like, artillery guns. Wow. Um, you know, musket balls, a lot of grape shot, probably a lot, mm. you know, more grape shot than we can count. Um, mm. And wow. just the overall evidence that there was a blockhouse there and, and some other things. It's amazing. It's amazing. And you also host conferences. You do one in the summer on the American Revolution. And you're doing one in October on William Johnson. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, so. for the last uh, about eight, seven, eight, nine years now, we've been doing the American, uh, or the, yeah, the American Revolution Conference in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, we started that with just, um, we had a couple authors, had some new books coming out. Mm -hmm. Don Hagas comes to mind. Um, mm -hmm. did the book on the last men, which included a soldier that actually served that four plane. So it's kind of mm -hmm. neat to see a picture of yeah. somebody who actually stood on the grounds. Mm -hmm. And so that pretty much we were doing a uh, one or two person talk and it kind of grew into a, a full day event. And with 150 mm -hmm. people signed up, it turned, mm -hmm. just blew in this, blew up into something huge. Yeah. Been, been doing it ever since. And it's been yeah. a lot of fun. It's terrific. I know you have really, uh, well, a lot of folks who have been guests on our podcast, James Kirby Martin, Bill Fowler, Don Hagis, have all uh, participated in the conference and a new scholarship on what was happening, not only in the Mohawk River Valley, but throughout the war. It's become a major event in thinking of rethinking the American Revolution. Yeah, definitely. You know, the main reason we did it was really just to bring people from all over the country. We even get a lot of people from Canada mm -hmm. that come down and just, you know, just so they can learn our history and see, you know, the Mohawk Valley's here. And we mm -hmm. have a lot of neat things to learn and see. And it's really overall a great experience. Met a lot of nice yeah. people through. That's, that's great. And uh, is this the first time you've done a conference on William Johnson? Yes, this year will be our first uh, annual Sir William Johnson, The Wars for Empires, and it's basically mm -hmm. going to cover everything prior to the revolution. Mm -hmm. um, our first one will definitely uh, hit that Sir William Johnson uh, theme and how he kind of related to different things that were going on throughout his life, his interactions with the Haudenosaunee, uh, the different wars that was going on before George's War, I believe is one mm -hmm. of them, obviously the French, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. Yeah. And so on and so forth. And yeah, it's uh, we have a lot of good speakers lined up for that. And mm. it'll be, be a nice Great. event. No, he really is a pivotal figure in the colonial period and into the early years of the revolution. It's uh, and helps us think about what the world would have looked like in that era to anyone thinking about it. Um, now, I think most of us have read Walter Edmonds, you know, Drums Along the Mohawk. Uh, is there a, hey, can you tell us? How historically accurate is it? And B, is there another book we should read to tell us or other books we should read about the war along the Mohawk? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, it's a good, you know, I enjoy Drums Along the Mohawk. You know, I probably try to watch the movie once a year. Yeah. You know, there's some, 
it tell it includes some accurate events that happened, but mm -hmm. as far as the movie, you know, definitely not as you know, they kind of mix and match some things. Sure. Like just for a couple of examples, like in the book, like within the first page, Gil and Lana get married at the Palatine Church, which is still standing. Hmm. So it, it's kind of neat. And yeah. I believe the movie didn't portray that. They showed them getting married in some mansion, I believe, in Albany or maybe in Schenectady. Yeah. But then there's some scenes in the movie where they show like women in the fort and where they're wearing mm -hmm. the, the continental coats and all that. We actually own one of the coats and it's on display at the museum. So we have a little display on drums them all. One of the all. coats from the movie or from yeah, a woman yeah, one wearing of, it? Okay. Yeah, one of the coats from the movie that was worn by a, a woman actress. And hmm. it's uh, really neat. And actually that story came from Fort Plain because during the uh, August 2nd, uh, 1780 raid on the Canajahari district, when the fort was really in its uh, beginning stages, they talk about a fort with no name. And there's talks about women and children running to the fort, taking mm -hmm. refugee. Then they put on coats, they hold broomsticks, and they're actually making it look like that the fort was manned. Because during that raid, the militia were off uh, taking provisions out to Fort Schuyler, Fort Stanwix. And so mm -hmm. basically the militia were away, you know, the, the mice play. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, mm -hmm. there's a story. So we feel that Walter Edmonds got that story from... Yeah. you know, from the four plane story. Mm -hmm. And in the book, there's a lot of tension between Herkimer because he's German and then the others who are of English descent. Is there, was, was there that kind of um, ethnic animosity among people of different uh, European ancestries at the time, do you think? Yeah, I would definitely uh, say so. Like when I was talking earlier about the clocks, clocks were German Palatines, yeah. and then Sir William mm -hmm. obviously being Irish, English, and so definitely mm -hmm. there was some sort of rivalries. In the in the reading and research that I've read, I haven't really come across like specific you know things that mm -hmm. you know relay that message. But I would say there definitely was, especially you know as mm -hmm. you know the war was coming and who decided to go on which side definitely played a role. Right, right, right. So, uh, and okay, so you said earlier that you think Joseph Brandt gets a bad rap. What about Philip Schuyler? He also kind of gets something of a bad rap, at least among New Englanders. Yeah, um, yeah, I think, you know, politics play, played a role. That's I, right, yeah. I believe John Adams wasn't a big fan of Philip Schuyler. No. Not to mention, you know, now you're looking at the Northern Campaign of 1777. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're looking at they evacuate Fort uh Fort Ticonderoga, they retreat back through. You have the Battle of Hubbardton. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that's where they kind of pin it on him, where they get yeah. him because he was commander of the Northern Army. Then, mm -hmm. then they use that to kind of toss him to the curb, and that's and then they name mm -hmm. Horatio Gates. Oh, yeah. yeah, but he's you know he kind of resigns, uh, kind of resigns. He does resign, mm -hmm. but he still stays active. He's definitely supplying the troops and definitely helping out the folks in the Mohawk Valley. You know, providing provisions and. Mm -hmm. you know, Definitely, you know, still played a key role. It was a big ally of Washington. Uh, so definitely it was, mm. you know, acting as the eyes and ears and relaying mm. any information he could. Mm. We're, we're talking with Brian Mack, who is on the board of trustees of the Fort Plain Museum along the Mohawk River Valley. And the museum does a great job representing the history of the revolution in the Mohawk River Valley and it hosts conferences on the American Revolution and the history of the valley. And as I was saying earlier, Brian, you're not a historian. So how did you, are you from the area and how did you get interested in digging into the history with this, to this depth? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I am from the area. Um, I grew up in a local town just outside, like, you know, probably 20 minutes from Fort mm -hmm. Plain. Um, and basically, uh, when I was going to college, I got into reading the roadside history markers. And so those were really intriguing. My mm -hmm. wife said she used to like to stop and read them, too. Mm -hmm. 
So I started doing that and I had to do like a volunteer thing. So I volunteered at Old Fort Johnson, which was Sir William's second home, which still stands mm. in, the, in the Mohawk Valley. I was a docent there, gave tours, really enjoyed it. Mm. And then my wife's uh, next our neighbor across the street, uh, Norman Bolin, who's the chairman of the Fort Play Museum. And my wife grew up with his kids, so they all knew each other. And then mm-hmm. uh, I was over at his mm-hmm. house for a family party, and we got to talk history. And then he said he was the chairman of the board of the museum, and ah. here, I, here I am. <laughs> well, well, it's it's great, and it's great to see someone who really takes on this role because, you know, I've been corresponding with you for a long time, and I always somehow thought you worked that this was your job, but no, you have another job that. Uh, pays the mortgage and here you are uh, really telling these stories and organizing these events which is um terrific so um should we have a movie a new movie on drums along the mohawk and how would it be different from the what was that made in the 40s yeah i think actually 30s if i'm not mistaken wow yeah either 37 or 38 and i could be wrong Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, been around for a while. Definitely uh, Norm Bolin, who I mentioned earlier, he wrote a book on George Washington and the Mohawk Frontier. So to kind of ah. come back and answer that question, that's probably the most up-to-date uh, history on the war in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, Norm mm-hmm. covers it all. He's using source documents. Uh, he really mm-hmm. he really got into George Washington's trip in 1783. Uh, George Washington visited a lot of sites uh, in the Mohawk mm-hmm. Valley during his uh, July and August visit throughout mm-hmm. upstate New York which really prompted him to write the book. And then he decided to cover the whole valley. And basically it's just a story mm. about how George Washington interacted with the Moth Valley throughout the entire war, mm. which mm. would probably make a really good movie. And would, I, yeah. always, I always say like a lot of these books that I read, these history books mm. would make really good movies as is, and they don't really need to yeah. uh, you know, fictionalize them and, and turn them into something they're really not. And, mm. That's true. That's true. I think one thing that happens too with, um, I mean, the, the folks who were there kind of knew about the area, but then the um, Sullivan campaign really, and then Washington visiting, they see the real potential in the Mohawk River Valley as an agricultural area. And then, of course, with the Erie Canal, it really brings, uh, it, it changes, the, it transforms the area, which was you know, much better than, say, the hard uh, soil of New England for you know growing for agriculture the mo the um iroquois people already knew that i mean they were great cultivators of the fruit trees and producing corn and other um products to make them such a strong people which then uh, the revolution really changes their lives in a significant way you know but it's really the war then that introduces this new frontier to the soldiers in Washington's army or in Sullivan's campaign who see it um, firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what are some of the other stories that we should know about uh, the, uh, what's your favorite story to tell someone who is visiting the Fort Plain Museum? Well, let's see. There's a lot of, I like to tell the origins of the fort, just being a place of refugee. Uh, Cause uh, definitely after, you know, 78, there was a lot of raids and you had the Sullivan campaign of 79 and then they knew, you know, mm-hmm. they knew they didn't get rid of, you know, they knew they were coming back. So, you know, it was, you know, just that anxiety of being on high alert, um, you know, having to, you know, take action, you know, at the sound of an alarm. It's definitely something you don't mm-hmm. think of or, or being there during the August 2nd raid where, you know, there was children and women fleeing that were killed and, and houses burned and, mm-hmm. You know, there is one interesting story, mm-hmm. a corn planter um, 
his father was John O'Beal, who had a house right on the on the the bottom of the hill where the fort uh, was located. Mm -hmm. And during that August second raid, Corn Planter was part of that. Um, they were about to torch his father's house. He comes in, says something to his father, the fact of "Do you remember me?" and gives him like an ultimatum to either go back or he'll let him go free. His father, you know, old in age, decides to just want to go free, so they let him out. They burn his they burn his house down and and go on. And it's kind of, you know, that's kind of an interesting story because you have, um, you know, European father, you have a, an Indian yeah. son who, you know, kind of come in contact kind of one last time mm -hmm. and, and it happened during the war. And, you know, like you said, one mm -hmm. of those things that would, you know, I think it's fascinating. make a good movie, you know, or make it, you know, an interesting I would. Movie. I would. Yeah. 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 And, Don't give away all the plots. I mean, this no, is, no, no. This is that, that, that would be a great movie. Yeah. And then, and we, we have the, we're, we're, yeah. Yeah, and there's some other stories too, like, like the Battle of Stone Arabia, uh, Clocksfield, uh, October 17th, 1780. Um, you have the British coming down from Canada. They have this uh, big attack, to, you know, our big plan to attack the entire mm -hmm. upstate New York region because we feel they were trying to, uh, based on some of the research in the Haldeman papers and some of the letters, that basically, they, you know, depending on the outcome of the war, either way, they wanted to come back and kind of claim their lands. So even if mm -hmm. the Americans did win, you know, the Mohawk Valley could be part of Canada and right. they would have, because all their, when you come through the Mohawk Valley now, a lot of the Royalist homes still stand. You got Butler's home, Sir wow. William Johnson's two homes still stand. And there's just mm -hmm. several of them throughout the valley that's, you know, that survived. So and, they didn't come back, but someone else took their house. Yeah, because during the war, all their properties were confiscated, you know, put out to auction. Mm -hmm. And basically yeah. Yeah, that was it. And, and they had to start fresh up in Canada. Well, well, still, though, it was very much in doubt during, I mean, this is one, one reason why the British were able to move in. They, I mean, they also had the Native American allies, too, who also knew the area very well. And so you were telling me earlier that you have a strategic plan for the museum, which is going to, um, yes, I, I so. hope improve it. Yeah, Go on. Yeah, we have a, a huge, uh, a museum site enhancement plan in play it will be in place by fall and what mm -hmm. it's going to include is on the fort hilltop it's going to be reconstructing some of the historic buildings like the big three-story block house the blacksmith mm -hmm. shop the bakehouse uh, and then also to putting nice uh nice park walk walking paths and more interpreted signage um interpreting the mm -hmm. fort we found other sites like the magazine site there was a lot of earthworks out there some some are still kind of visible we could possibly rebuild them to enhance them for the visitor mm -hmm. but it's really to preserve the site because mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff out there right. that can be preserved and the blockhouse mm -hmm. will act as the catalyst of that where you can go up in this blockhouse you'll be able to oversee the entire property so that's one phase wow. of it this the second phase of it would be to uh, add a museum addition um, we have mm -hmm. an extensive native american uh, uh iroquois collection from different all different time periods um, would be definitely mm. an excellent uh, exhibit. Mm -hmm. We have a we have quite a bit of it on display now, but there's still quite a bit that's uh, stored and and cataloged in our in our collections that we'd like to get out and and teach the story. And right. also too would be included would right. be um, a new uh, conference center, uh, cl educational classrooms. Mm -hmm. We really want to turn it into uh, mm -hmm. you know a good. Uh, educational experience so you can come and learn about the Mohawk Valley and the revolution, the people, mm. um, the places, everything, you know, that was involved. And who funds the Fort Plain Museum and Historical Center? 
Now the floor clean museum is funded by. If you mind great, me asking, no, not at all. By our great uh, donors, um, all of our, you know, the conferences have definitely put us in touch. So they're a great fundraiser. Um, we do get a lot of donations. Okay. We get a little bit of local help. Mm -hmm. um, the county actually is funding our strategic study, so they've been a big help. Okay. Um, we have a huge bookstore, over seven hundred titles online. It's mm. um, also in person. That definitely helps fund things, uh, all our educational mm -hmm. programs from our conferences to our roadside marker program mm. and all of the above exhibits and all the great things. Wow, that's great. So you're not part of the National Park Service or New York State, you're privately, no, you're... Yeah, we're a 501, uh, 501, okay. uh, three, uh, yeah, 501C, uh, C3, not for profit. C3, yeah, yeah. Mix yeah. that up and I should know that right off. I write it on a lot of stuff. Well, this is, it, it's great to see this. So um, who created the museum? I mean, whose idea was it to have, hey, why don't we take this site which and turn it into a museum that will tell the story of these, this period in American history? Yeah, the folks who know about Fort William Henry and Lake George, it's kind of like a tourist mm -hmm. uh, fort attraction, I actually just went there yesterday. After they built that, the uh, person in charge of that and the archaeologist actually decided, okay, they wanted to do the same thing in Fort Plain. So in the late mm. 50s, it might have actually been 1960, wow. they came to Fort Plain. Uh, they uh, did a lot of extensive uh, archaeology and trying to research to find the mm -hmm. footprints of the fort, which they did find a lot of stuff. Mm. And then unfortunately, the archaeologist passed away a year into uh. into the project. And then the person who was invested in that just kind of shut it down. And then it was kind mm. of because they already found a lot of stuff. So they just it was kind of handed over to the local folks. Uh, Donald Lenning, the father of our um, uh, board, uh, Wayne Lenning, his father mm. actually kind of took control of it then and started, you know, then a group of locals started the museum what it is today. Well, wow. so we're talking with Brian Mack from the Fort Plain Museum and History Park in uh, now what town are, what towns are you near in upstate New York? If someone wants to come and visit you, how would they? Find yeah, we're, you? we're kind of located right in between Albany and Utica. So if you take I-90, if you're coming from the west, mm -hmm. you know, you go past Utica, probably about an hour. We're right there off exit 29. We're probably about an hour east from Albany. So we're like kind of right in the middle. Mm -hmm. We're not probably about an hour away from Fort Stanwix, probably about an hour mm -hmm. and a half from Saratoga Battlefield. So we're kind of like right in the middle of those two. And mm -hmm. and um, yeah, we're we're right in the village of Fort Plain. So we're, we're in mm -hmm. the outskirts of the village of Fort Plain. There's the town of Minden, uh, mm -hmm. the, the current town of Canajahari, which is more east than mm -hmm. the historic location of Canajahari. And those would be the way to, to find us. And we're not too far from Cooperstown either. Oh, good, good. So all destinations, yeah. And uh, are you open year-round? Um, we are open seasonally. So usually we open up in May, uh, mm -hmm. about second week of May. Um, currently, we are open seven days a week throughout the summer. And then we reduce mm -hmm. our schedule down almost through uh, Christmas time. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of close up, you know, for the beginning of winter and mm -hmm. stuff. But if, our goal is to keep it open year-round. Oh, good, good. And in addition to the conferences, do you have a living history or other kinds of events going on at the museum we did those in the past that's kind of also what got me we kind of roped in a little bit we had dean melissa up here uh, mm -hmm. retracing george washington's footsteps from from 1783 and it was just a great event mm -hmm. and we've done some smaller events like we had we used to have a boy scout campery for about three mm -hmm. years with living history and we do look to bring that back for future future mm -hmm. events great 
Right. So you have a new strategic plan where you're going, hoping to build. How big was the fort when it was um, in operation? It was definitely a four-sided stockade. It started as mm -hmm. like a, I don't know the, the exact dimensions. Um, our our board member, Wayne Lenning, has a great book called The Revolutionary War Forts of, fort, of Canajahari mm -hmm. and includes Fort Plain and some of the other forts. And he really, I don't know the exact dimension, but it was a stockaded uh, four-sided fort with bastions. And then mm -hmm. it started out as that, and then it kind of grew into the whole hilltop. So when you come up to the museum, mm -hmm. um, if you're looking, if you're standing at the museum parking lot, looking at the Fort Hill to the left would have been like the stockade. Then eventually, 1780, mm -hmm. 81, 82, 83, the whole Fort Hill is fortified because the big three-story blockhouse is placed over on the right. So it definitely became mm -hmm. quite the complex. Uh, Colonel Marinus Willett. Um, you know, Washington, mm -hmm. you know, elects him to take command of the New York State levies, and he names Fort Plain as headquarters, I believe, in July of 1781. And that's his headquarters mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the war. Wow. So it was a pretty substantial um, thing, this the fort and the buildings inside. And uh, these people who were refugees from the Mohawk River Valley would have been also living inside the fort. Yeah, they would have, well, it didn't have any homes inside the fort, but it would de definitely okay. be a place, you know, so the alarm sounds. There was a local, they called it the Sand Hill Community, our Sand Hill Settlement. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely a, a community down below. So if you come to the fort, you'll see it's up on a hill. And down mm -hmm. below, there was definitely a, houses and settlements where okay. you know, the folks would run to. So it's a strategic area, then you can look out and see what might, who might be coming. Yes, because when, yeah, when you're on the four hill, you can pretty much see almost not quite all four sides because there is way in mm -hmm. the back. There's another little elevation that goes up. But for the most part, where the fort was located, you could see all around and there'd be no surprise attacks or anything. And it stayed a the blockhouse stayed up right up through 1800 and housed artillery guns that actually ended up being moved down to the New York Harbor when they built the fleet wow. around mm -hmm. in the late 1700s. So all of the guns and things were gone when the archaeology started in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, um, yeah it was gone for a good 100 and wow. probably a good 170 years by then. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, you're doing a great job bringing it back. We're talking with Brian Mack from the Fort Plain Museum in upstate New York, which tells a very important story about the war in the Mohawk River Valley. Anything else we should talk about, Brian? I want to encourage people to visit and check out the conferences you're doing and the other things. Yeah, definitely. Please check out our website. That's where we keep all we keep everything up to date there, our conferences and and everything. We have an email address info at fortplainmuseum.org. You can always reach me there. Um, mm -hmm. I try to do get back to people within two, two, three days. I know sometimes I'm a little slow at getting there, yeah. but um, but no, definitely, you know, definitely appreciate everybody who's been supporting us. Uh, definitely Revolution 250 yourself. You know, everybody who's always sharing stuff on Twitter, Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, sharing our emails, word of mouth. We definitely appreciate all that kind of support. That's great. great. Uh, so fortplainmuseum.org is the website. And I didn't realize, so I was looking at the website, that info at fortplainmuseum.org actually brings us to you. I mean, it says contact yep. Brian. And uh, so, yeah. So, so thank you for doing all of this. It's really terrific to see this fort being brought back and the history being presented in such a really professional and nuanced and interesting way. Um, so thank you, Brian, and thank you everyone at the Fort Plain Museum. And I also want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer, and our many listeners. You know, we thought we'd have a handful of folks in and around Boston listening in, but we have listeners really all over the world. And I'd like to acknowledge our friends in Norwalk, Connecticut, and in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, Webster, New York, 
um, Huntington, West Virginia, Croton on Hudson. Is it Croton or Croton on Hudson? Uh, I heard Croton. Hudson River. I heard, Croton, I heard okay, it say Croton, but I could be wrong. Okay. I could be wrong too. You know, when you spend your formative years in New Jersey, you do spend a long time learning how to pronounce things. Uh, Enola, Pennsylvania, Northampton, Pennsylvania, and Norway, Germany, Thailand, and all points in between. Thank you all for joining us. And now we will be piped out on the road to Boston.